Revelation chapter 2. This starts a new section in chapter 1 verse 19. It breaks the book down for us. It says, things which you have seen, which is chapter 1, things which are chapters 2 and 3 concerning the churches, and then things that will be chapters 4 to chapters 22 concerning the end times. And we looked at chapter 1 and saw the revelation of Jesus. Now in chapter 2 and 3, there's a message currently to the seven churches. Now, there's four different ways the teachings on the seven churches will apply. The first way is just very practically in the primary to the seven churches that are actually there at that time. The Lord really did feel this about them and had a message for them in the current time in which the letter is being written. Secondly, there is a prophetic, historic prophetic view, if you would, where you can take a look at the seven churches and look at them at dispensation of times throughout history. And so as you come to the seventh church, the church of Laodicea, it applies to our time period in the last days before the coming of the Lord. Then there is the third way, which is to churches of all times. Whatever the church of Ephesus or Laodicea or Smyrna dealt with, we also will deal with. Because there's no sin that's not common to all men. There's no struggle that's not common to all struggles. There's no church. Every church is going to go through the various seasons and struggles as every church would. So whatever's going on in the church of Ephesus, also at some time, if not presently, at some time in the past or sometime in the future, will speak to us directly. We also at some point will be the church of Ephesus if we're not right now. But then also, fourthly, individually. God has something to say to you. And so we often come here, got on our thinking caps, ready to study the word and to get from it the facts and the data and and how it speaks to me. But I would say more than ever, let the facts and the data sort of roll off your back like the like water off a duck's back, and really focus in on the devotional aspect of these seven churches and ask the Lord, Lord, how does this speak to me? Are you saying this to me? Because when you think about it, the Lord has some pretty heavy things to say to these churches. You know, I don't think the church of Laodicea was sitting there and the Lord showed up and said, hey, you guys are lukewarm and you make me want to throw up and you need to repent. And they're going, hmm, yeah, I was thinking you were going to say that. I don't think that's the case. I think the church of Laodicea is going, what? You say, what did you say, Jesus? I thought we were doing great. I thought we were well fed. I thought we were well clothed. I thought we were Blessing the so- your socks off you, Lord, and, and, and we are grieving you to the point that you want to shut us down? You see, I, I think it was a shock to them. And I think to each of the churches, for the most part, they were shocked by what the Lord said. And in essence, we also could be at that place where the Lord has something to say to us that's rather shocking. And I think, as always, our first reaction is, no, 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 not me. That's not right. No, next, next, next point. But to stop and to say, okay, Lord, I'm open. You know, I, I could just picture Mary one day, you know, this young teenage girl, you know, washing her clothes or doing her chores. And all of a sudden the angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. 
It's like, what? I don't even, I'm, I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. What are you talking about? And he's going to be God most high. He's going to be the son of God. And, you know, you can imagine her mind just being blown away. And then she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. The power of the most high is going to, you know, I mean, she, she's just got to be going on sensory overload. But finally, she just says this, and I, and I love this. In Luke 1.38, and Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I love that. She, she was overwhelmed with the thought of being pregnant, although she was a virgin. And, of course, she's not even married out of wedlock and how that would look. And, and, and to realize that the Messiah was going to come through her. And, but even after all the information and the sensory overload and, and this radical experience, she finally just said, you need my willingness and you got it. I'm a vessel for your use. Take me. I'm your servant. You do with me as you have said, do with me. And that needs to be our heart as we look at these seven churches. Lord, I'm willing. I'm your servant. Do with me however you need to do with me. I'm I'm willing. However you need to adjust, tighten, break off, glue together, tear away, whatever you need to do, Lord. I'm your servant. Here I am. Speak to me. So here in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So the word angel, as we talked about in chapter 1, is actually in Greek and in Hebrew. It's also the same word, just generically, for messenger. But it also is the word for angel, like we understand an angel. So it could be that this is a particular angel that is put in charge over the church of Ephesus. We know in the book of Hebrews that angels are spirits that God created to minister unto us. And so maybe there's a unique Calvary Chapel San Diego angel guarding over us 24 hours a day. And we all have individual guardian angels. And so I'm not sure what this is talking to. Maybe it's talking about the messengers of the church referring to the pastor. But either way, it's to the people of the church, to the angel, to the one, the spiritual leader that I put in charge, whether it's an angel or a man, I have a message for the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a magnificent city, a radical city. It was probably the most famous city of its day because it was right on the coast there of the Aegean Sea. It was right at the mouth of the Keister River. And it was one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. It was the door into all of what we know today as Asia Minor or Turkey today. And it was an incredible uh, historical city. Interesting, today it's no longer on the coast. It's actually four miles inland because of sedimentation. But it's located in the western coast of Turkey. We have a map here for you. There is the ancient map of the time. And you can see in the left-hand corner there, Across the sea is Ephesus from Greece. And then across you have Ephesus there in Turkey today. And then, uh, again, a, a more modern glimpse of the map of what it looks like today. 
And then you have the seven churches. And so it's basically what was called a mail route of the day, starting at Ephesus, the seaport town, and then the postmen would go on up to Smyrna and Pergama and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, taking the message uh, that's been delivered by the Lord into each of these seven churches. Ephesus today, if you were to visit it, uh, it is, uh, has amazing historic ruins uh, there today. And you can see uh, the residue, if you would, of the great glory of what the city once was. And uh, the city that says when you walked, you got off a boat that you got onto a marble sidewalk that continued throughout this vast city. Incredible architecture, incredible design, incredible building. They had an amazing library there with 12,000 scrolls put into niches in the wall. And then another wall outside of that built so the temperature inside the library maintained the same no matter how hot or cold it was outside, to preserve those scrolls. Here's another picture of that library, incredibly large. And then also, uh, you have various theaters. You have the one theater that seated 25,000. Then there's an amphitheater, they estimated, that seated up to 100,000. It was a very influential Roman city. And then you have the various religious life. You had uh, various gods, much idolatry there. But the most well-known was the temple in the Romans called Artemis, uh, or the Greeks called Diana. And they had an incredible temple there, uh, four times the size of the Pantheon in Athens. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, It had... um, 127 pillars, and each pillar had 60 or 65, 60 feet tall and adorned with great sculptures, each and every one of them. And they worshiped the goddess of Artemis or Diana, who uh, was a woman with multitude of breasts, starting at her neck all the way down her legs, her arms, are breast. Uh, they worshiped the woman's breast, basically. And uh, you can go to the next one. That's gross. And uh, it was a goddess of fertility or the the goddess of sex. And so the city of Ephesus was about 500,000 people. But during the festivals of Diana or Artemis, they would have up to 2 or 3 million people there. And it was just a huge continual sexual orgy for days. And you can imagine uh, how grievous this must have been the church. They also worshipped the goddess Nike. And, uh, you know, you got your Nike shoes, you know, and stuff today. Uh, but it was the goddess of conquest or rulership or power, one who had the control. Interesting enough, you had, uh, if you read Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20, you can read about that. But a Priscilla and Aquila came down with Apollos, uh, great preachers of the word, and had a, a powerful ministry there. Later, the apostle Paul came and pastored there for three years. And as you read Acts, it'll tell you that it reached all of what we know as Turkey today, uh, the Asia Minor area from Paul staying right there. He was a college professor in the school of Tyrannius for a couple of years. 
uh, during those days, they had a couple hours or two or three hours of siesta in the middle of the day. And people, the multitudes of people came and listened to Paul preached. And after they would say, they would go back to their hometowns all the way through Asia Minor and start their own churches there. The Apostle John, after being on the island of Patmos, they say for 10 years, history says that he was a slave there on that island, being treated as a prisoner in the marble mines there on that horrible island of Patmos. But he finally was released. And when he was released, he went to Ephesus. Now as a very elderly man, he passed through the church of Ephesus until he died, according to tradition. And this is the burial site of the Apostle uh, John. That's there in dedication to his ministry of the church of Ephesus. And of course, as you read this letter today to the church of Ephesus, you are going to realize that when Paul, when the apostle John went back to Ephesus, there was probably a great fire in his soul to help that church out, to make sure that the Lord did not take its candlestick away, as he said that he would do if they didn't repent, as we study this morning. And so... As we look at the seven churches, we're going to see a pattern of how the Lord speaks to them. First of all, what the Lord's going to do is he's going to point out an aspect of his nature. He's going to, as you look at chapter one, there's a description of the Lord, whether it's of his hair or his feet or the sword that comes out of his mouth. You're going to see a various aspect of him. And one or two of these aspects are going to be attributed to each one of the seven churches until you have the full description of Jesus piece by piece delivered to each of the seven churches. And um, the first piece that we see here of the revelation of Jesus is that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels, the messengers. Uh, We know this from Revelation 120. And then also he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. Again, Revelation one twenty plainly tells us the lampstands are the churches. And so, and particularly wants the church of Ephesus to know that all the powers that are there are in his control, are in his hand. And that he himself is in the midst of the church. The Lord loves his church. The Lord loves being at church. The Lord loves his people. And he loves dwelling in the midst of his people. So after we get our eyes upon Jesus, the second thing the Lord does is gives positive affirmation to each of the churches except the one. He has positive things to say about them. And then after that, then he gives the correction, things that need to change or things they need to repent of. And then fourthly, he gives the reward, a heavenly reward. The most important of all rewards, an eternal reward, is theirs if they can stay on track, repent and get things right, and continue a steady walk with the Lord until he comes or until they see him face to face. The reward is so great, it's worth the present obedience. And so the revelation of the nature of Jesus, positive affirmation, the correction, and then the reward promised, an eternal reward. And so we see here now in chapter 2, verse 2, He tells them the positive affirmation. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And there in verse 3, he goes on, And you preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So he praises them for their incredible hard work. 
And not just working, but laboring for the body of Christ, just serving the body of Christ, just giving their all to benefit the believers, serving and ushering, serving and greeting, serving and teaching Sunday school, serving and going to the orphanage, serving and ministering to those in need. They truly gave themselves into labor to making sure that the church was strong and healthy. And what a wonderful type of church it is when people are serving with their whole hearts one another. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So be steadfast, be immovable. Don't stop your labors. Don't stop your efforts. Don't stop your sweating in serving the body of Christ. Don't stop in washing the saints' feet because the reward is incredible. It's never in vain. The blessings are there for eternity. God will not forget such work and labor of love and patience. In other words, you didn't peter out after a couple of years. You've been doing this for years and years. Boy, how many people can, when we get to heaven and we see the whole picture of what incredible blessing they've been. I think of the camps this last week I had went, went through uh, as a junior higher and a high schooler and even in elementary school, I went to Christian camps and I'll tell you what, I was impacted by certain people at those camps. I mean, my life has changed. I can remember being nine years old at a camp or 15 years old at a camp and seeing the counselors. And, of course, I didn't know how to explain it to them then, but they have truly impacted my life continually from that point. But I wonder if some of them left the camp going, boy, that was a wasted week. Or, man, that was more work than it was worth. Or, man, that's the last time I'm going to be a counselor at one of those camps. I wonder how many Sunday school teachers have taught Sunday school for 50 years and wonder, man, have I really made an impact teaching those kindergartners or pouring out my life into those third graders? Let me tell you something. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And because you've been patient and endured, so often people will toy around with it and do a little something here or there for just a short time. And then they get bored with it and they go on to the next or they get bored and go off to the next church to find the new music or the new jokes or find the newest entertainment in town. They don't have that commitment to be continually laboring, serving year after year, decade after decade. But this church did. He also says you cannot bear those who are evil Wickedness, you, 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 it grieves you as it grieves me. Boy, that's a beautiful thing. In Romans 12, it says, abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. And that was these guys. And there was a lot of evil things going on. There was a lot of wicked stuff happening in Ephesus. And they really hated it. I love the picture there. And as you read it on your own, Acts 18, 19, and 20, you'll discover in Acts chapter 19, verse 19 and 20, that all the people that were into witchcraft and all the people that were into the various magic arts and all into the various idolatries, they brought all of their witchcraft books and all of their um, various uh, implements and stuff. They had an idolatrous worship and they brought it and they all burned it. 
And they said that the amount that that valued, the stuff they brought, was 50,000 pieces of silver. The open Bible estimated that to be about $364,000 worth of paraphernalia of witchcraft. They could have said, hey, let's go to the swap meet and sell those books or the magic wand or whatever and take the money and buy Christian tracts or buy Bibles or whatever. But they didn't. They had such a hatred for evil. They just said, burn that stuff. I don't want anybody to ever use it for any reason whatsoever. They had a hatred in their heart for evil. And also it says in verse, goes on and say there, they have tested those who say they have our apostles and are not and have found them liars. You'll also discover in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was finishing his three years of ministry there, he says in verse 29 to 31, he says, And I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. As I fed you the whole counsel of God, I wasn't trying to fatten up the sheep for the slaughter. At the same time, I was fattening you up with the word of God. I constantly for three days or three years, night and day with tears, kept saying, guys, they are going to come in. They're going to be charismatic. They're going to be powerful. They're going to be convincing from even out of their own group here, as well as from outside, they're going to come and take you away to a different Jesus, to a different gospel, to a different spirit. Guys, you've got to know this stuff so you can know the truth. And these leaders said, no one's going to steal my sheep, and I'm going to look through the sheep's clothing and see a wolf inside. And indeed, they took that command of Paul deeply to heart, and they tested those who said they were apostles. And when they found out they weren't, they mark them as liars. You say, no, hold it. That's, that's sort of unkind. Doesn't the Bible say we're not supposed to judge? Yep, it sure does. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, there you go. That's, that's the verse. Well, 14 verses later, Jesus in the same message said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. So you're going to know them. You're going to know what they are by their fruits. So Jesus on one hand says don't judge, but on the other hand, he commands us to discern. So if somebody is struggling, we don't want to put them down saying, why are you sinning? We all struggle. We all fall. We want to encourage one another, not judge or condemn, but help each other up and encourage one another to keep walking strong in the Lord. But on the other hand, if somebody's coming preaching a different gospel, we don't want to say, well, who am I to judge? We are all to judge. That's our part of our job is to say, hold it. The Bible says this and you're saying that you're using that scripture and twisting it that way. And that's wrong. And we need to be ready to defend the truth and stand for the truth. In 2 Corinthians 11, it says, for set your false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So if Satan were to appear here right now, 
You wouldn't say, Satan. You wouldn't get it. You would go, ooh, ah, he's so beautiful. Look at how pure he looks. Listen to his words. Oh, they're healing. Oh, they sound so true. Oh, man, it's so wonderful listening to him. Oh, what he had to say was exactly where I'm at. That would be the way it would be if when Satan would appear. And how much more as false apostles or as false prophets. But you've got to get through the beautiful colors. Like Eve, he came as the most beautiful of all the creatures and began to speak to her. You've got to get through all the beautiful colors and the oohs and the ahs and all the ooey-gooey feelings and say, what is the core of what he's teaching? What is he saying? Is he talking about the true Jesus? Is he presenting the true gospel, the unchangeable true gospel, the unchangeable true God? And if it's not the case, then no matter how beautiful he may seem, no matter how much light he may appear to be giving off, he is of Satan. He is not of God. And then it goes on in verse 3 there to say, once again, you have preserved and you have patience. So now for the second time, he's commending them saying, you guys didn't grow weary in well-doing. You guys hung in there. You persevered. When persecution came, a lot of people in various places said, whew, fire's too hot. I'll be a Christian, but just over here in the closet because I don't want to be persecuted. When they came and and were difficult uh, against you and you said, hey, either you start worshiping Diana again or you lose your job, you said, okay, you know, I'll chill out on the Christian things. I don't want to lose my job. When they came and said, hey, we're not going to buy your pottery anymore unless you start worshiping Diana. And they put you out of business, but you didn't care. You lost your job. They put you out of business. They kicked you out of your apartment. They persecuted you because you were a Christian, but you stood your ground. You persevered. And then temptation came in. A beautiful prophetess from the, from the temple came and said, hey, I want to have sex with you all night and, and, and worshiping Diana. Come and, and let me take your clothes off and let's go back. And, and here you were with this beautiful young girl and you, you resisted. You said, no, I'm not going to give myself into that which is impure. My body is the Lord's. You persevered. You were patient. Each and every year, you've continued on being faithful to the Lord. And again, it says you labored. For my name's sake, you did it for me. You didn't do it for somebody else. You didn't do it for praise of the people in the church. You didn't do it to be somebody in power and leadership in the church. You did it unto me, and you didn't become weary. The Bible says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Whatever it takes, don't let it become the same old, same old. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. Keep it consistent. Seven different positive things he said about the church. Guys, make note of this. Because, you see, we all have to correct people, don't we? Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's your spouse. Sometimes it's your kids. Sometimes it's somebody at work. Sometimes it's somebody here in the church. And notice how the Lord does it. The first thing he does is he gets their eyes on the Lord. Guys, we got to get our eyes on the Lord and everybody else. We got to help them get their eyes on the Lord. The only hope we have is keeping our eyes on Jesus. The Bible says, put your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not at the treetops, not at the mountaintops, not at the stars. 
not at another galaxy, but right all the way up to Jesus and seeing him there at the right hand of the Father. Get your eyes on the things above. And this is where he comes saying, look at Jesus upon the throne. Look at what's in his right hand. Look at him as he's in the midst of the church. Get your eyes upon the Lord and see who he is. That's what we need to do as parents with our kids. That's what we need to do with our spouses. That's what we need to do even with non-Christians in the workplace. Get them to see Jesus. After we get their eyes upon the Lord, we need to encourage them. Nobody changes from a negative. There's a thousand and one things that are wrong with us and how we know it. I'm so glad that God isn't finished with us. (laughs) I'm so glad that he loves us enough. He's not going to leave us as we are. But we need encouragement, don't we? And we need affirmation. A lot of times we'll do the right things accidentally. And until we realize we did the right thing, we won't continue it. When my kids were small and and finally they just got up from the dinner table and took their plate over and washed it off and and grabbed the mustard and put it in the refrigerator. And I'm, wow, that was great. That you did that without us asking you or telling you, you helped mom out and and you helped the whole family doing your part. They're like, what'd I do? What'd I do? Okay, you know, you, you didn't realize it, but you went and washed your plate off and helped put things away. You don't realize how much a help that is. Thank you. What do you think they're going to do the next time? They're affirmed. They realize it was an accident. (laughs) They accidentally did what they've been trained to do. But now you're affirming that to encourage them to do that again. And so, man, again, come back to that affirmation. Guys, your labor, you don't know how much help it is being an usher. You don't realize how powerful it is you being there to teach those little kids. You don't realize what a help it is to those orphans as you go down to help at the orphanage. Well, all I did was install a cabinet. You know what, though? You, that was such a huge help. All I was, did is I was down there a day and, and helped paint a wall, but it was huge. You don't realize. So giving that affirmation, giving that encouragement. And again, the Bible tells us that when we correct people, there's a certain pattern, a certain way we're to do it. In Ephesians chapter 4, really in the whole section, verses 11 through 16, but in particular, it says, we're to speak the truth in love. Not as Pharisees pointing the finger in condemnation, but in love, we're to speak the word to one another, encouraging each other. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, it says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So notice again, coming and speaking in love with the tone of your voice, with the attitude of your heart, and not quarreling, not being argumentative, not in a fighting way, but gentle, teaching, using the scriptures, patient, being humble. Hey, I'm not some great spiritual guy and you're, you're a worm. I'm as big a sinner as you are and humble. And it says, perhaps they'll come to their senses. Guys, I, I don't want 
you to think anything other than the truth. Most people don't respond in, a, in, a, in the right manner. 80% of the time, people will get mad at you for trying to help them. The Proverbs makes it very clear that the fool, the scoffer, that he'll give you a scar, that he'll bring shame upon you for trying to help him. But the wise man will receive the wisdom and become wiser still, and he'll bless you and he'll praise you because you stepped out and you helped him. It's a hard thing to confront people. I don't know if you've ever been at a party and you know you've been eating some potato chips with some dip and there you're talking to somebody for 15 minutes and you turn around and you talk to somebody else for one second they go oh right there and you you know you got this big dripping onion dip on the side of your face and man I sat and talked to that guy for 15 minutes and he said nothing to me you know that makes me reevaluate I don't really think he's my friend anymore because in his mind he said I would rather somebody else point that out to him. I'd rather somebody else make tension with him. I'd rather somebody else tell him that he should be embarrassed. I don't, be, I don't want to be the one to, to bring bad news to him. You know what I think? I think that guy wasn't a real friend to me. Because a real friend would have said, I know this is going to make you feel stupid or embarrassed, but you know you got something on your face. Oh, thank you. I was embarrassing. I am a slob, and, and it's really good. Now I'm going to go eat some more, but <laughs> thank you. It's a difficult thing. But as believers, we have to step out and do that, and we do it with the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for reproof. Excuse me, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Two out of the four things is about correcting people rebuking people. And as Christian leaders, that's our job. We are to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, Paul says there in 2 Timothy 4, that we're to endure affliction, we're to fulfill our ministry. It's part of our job as spiritual leaders, as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to step out in a very uncomfortable place and confront those. Faithful are the wounds of what? A friend. Friends wound friends. Iron sharpens iron. What? One friend sharpens another, the countenances of another. So after he gets your eyes on Jesus, after you affirm them with positive things, then you bring the correction. I've been in situations where people's marriages have just kept tiptoeing, growing apart. And if you don't catch it, eventually what happens is they start standing their ground. You're going to say that, I'll say that. You're going to be that way, I'll be that way. You want to do that? Well, then I'll do this. I'll one-up you on, you know, and until they just keep drifting apart. And I've had them in marriage counseling situations saying, okay, write down things that bother you about your spouse. And man, they start going, and oh, this needs some more ink. This pen's ran out, you know, give me another one out. And then they say, okay. I want you to write now three things that you appreciate about your spouse. There they are drawing pictures. Oh, man. Can you give me a couple weeks on this one? I can't even figure out one. Boy, it's gone from anger to bitterness to wickedness. Oh, the only reason 
he brought me those flowers because he wanted to have sex. The only reason she cooks me good food is because she wants my money. It's like even the good things they do for each other has some evil motive behind it. It becomes wickedness. And that's where we have to get in there way ahead of time. And, and to realize, you know what? To correct people, it needs to be from people that love you and that have love in their heart. And that people who don't have a, a root of bitterness in their heart, but they're spiritual people who have gentleness and have love and have patience and have the word of God. And with kindness and gentleness and humility, they present their argument from the very mouth of Jesus saying, I love you. There's so many great things about you, but. And here the Lord now comes and he gives the instruction. And notice what he says here. Nevertheless, I have this against you. The word in the Greek is very heavy. Nevertheless, it's a very strong term of contrast. Although you have all this going for you, all of this cannot replace or balance out the scales of the, one, of the bad thing I'm getting ready to tell you. In other words, although you got all of that going for you, this one thing here, it's not going to make up for it. So although you've paid your taxes for the last 50 years in a row, you got to pay your taxes again this year. Well, I paid them 50 years in a row. Can't they let me skip one year? You know, no, you can't make up for it. And so even though you have all this labor and all this patience and all these years of faithful service under the Lord under your belt, I have something against you. Imagine that. Imagine tomorrow morning your boss shows up at nine o'clock and he comes in and he says, hey, you've done a really great job on this project and that project, but I'm really offended at you right now. And I want to talk to you at three o'clock, be in my office. What are you going to be thinking between nine o'clock and three o'clock? You're going to be in your own little personal hell, aren't you? I mean, you're not going to be able to eat lunch. You're just sort of not going to be able to think or get anything done. And your mind starts soaring. What did I do that he's against me? Imagine our Lord coming and saying, I am against you. That's a heavy, heavy thing, isn't it? And so our mind starts soaring. For God to be against somebody, I must have killed somebody or embezzled a billion dollars or ran over some little old lady crossing the street in her wheelchair or something. I mean, it's got to be huge, doesn't it? For God to be against me? What could have I had done that would be so huge that God is against me? And then he tells us, you left your first love. Now, at first glance, you might say, oh, I thought I was something serious. (laughs) That's it? Yeah, you know, you're right. I I should love you better, and I'm going to start working on that, and and, plan on seeing some improvement over the next few weeks. Anything else? But notice the Lord's response in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, do the first works, or else. I always hate when my parents used to say that. Get in there and clean your room up, or else. Or else what? You don't want to know. Or else. I don't know what it was, but I did it. And he says here, he tells us, or else. What? Or else what? I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm coming and closing the church down. It won't be in existence anymore. 
if it doesn't happen and happen immediately. Which makes you back up to say, okay, hold it. <laughs> I left my first love. This is, this is such a huge thing in the mind of the Lord. He's ready to close up shop. He's ready to stop the whole thing. What could be happening here? Notice this, first of all, it says you left. Somehow, you tiptoed away, little by little, week by week, month by month, year by year, until you no longer have a love relationship with the Lord. Maybe at first it was school, and then a relationship, and then work, and making money, and getting a house, and fixing up the house, and then the sports, and then the kids, and whatever it was, you kept replacing, saying, God, you are my main priority. I'm going to get back to you as soon as I close this still, as soon as I get over this season, as soon as I finish school, as soon as I get that job, as soon as I, and before you know it, you're going through motions without any emotions. You have a loveless relationship. I've seen this, guys. I wish I could say I've only seen it a couple times. But I've seen this in marriages where people get busy with the work and busy with the career and busy with the kids and busy with the sports and busy with the science projects and busy with the soccer and busy. And all of a sudden, they have this little problem in marriage and, you know, they're sitting far on each side of the bed and then they're moving to separate beds and then they're in separate bedrooms and and they're married for the kids and because of the bills and they don't want to lose the house and, and they're coexisting. And then finally the last kid leaves the house and they look at each other going, who are you? I like this and you like that. I want to go there. You want to go there. I don't even want you as a roommate. It hadn't been a marriage for many, many years. They had just been roommates because there was a lot of work to be done. They cohabitated. And God is saying, I am not going to let things dwindle to that place. I've had people come in and they have not had sex in years. They have not been out on a date for decades. They cannot remember the last time they held hands or walked on a beach or stared across a table, just the two of them, and said, I love you. And all of a sudden, two years turned into 10 years, turned into 20 years. And from frustration to anger to bitterness, and things were destroyed. And God here is saying, I'm offended at you. Because you've let other things become the master passion. You didn't do it on purpose. You didn't say, I'm going to wake up the morning and I'm going to have a new God. My new God's going to be football. But why am I so excited about football season? And uh, I got to go to church today and I hope Brian preaches short for once. Uh, how many songs do they have to sing? It seems like worship's been going on for 10 hours. I hope nobody wants to talk to me after church. Oh, I just want to get out of here. Burn rubber out of the driveway. Something's happened. Little by little, inch by inch, through the years you've tiptoed away and you replaced it. The cares of this life, the desire for other things, the deceitfulness of riches, 
the distractions until Christ became an annoyance in your life. He became something you had to upkeep rather than something that was a passion that you enjoyed and loved. What's the cure? What's the diagnosis here? What's the antidote for the cure? First of all, notice in verse 5, remember, therefore, from wherein you've fallen. Remember back when you were on fire for the Lord. I, I can remember so clearly. When I was 15 years old, I was raised in a church, but from 12 to 15, my parents walked away from the Lord, and we all lived as if we never had known God. It was a very horrible time. I don't even like talking about it. My parents divorced, my brother, my sister, everybody's gone, and a fragment of my family loads up in a U-Haul and coming back across the United States. And I remember so much frustration, so much anger in my heart. And I then remembered back when I was a kid, when my family walked with the Lord, and a lot of people came to mind that I saw Jesus in, and, and I realized I am on self-destruct button unless Jesus is in control of my life. It's not a matter of, well, I could choose this or I choose that. If I don't have Jesus, I'm dead. If I don't have Jesus, I'm going to be destroyed. And I asked the Lord to forgive me my sins and come into my life as I had done when I was probably about four years old. And I'll tell you what, it was like 300 billion pounds fell off of me. I was so free. My heart was free. My mind was free. And I wanted to read the Bible. A few weeks later, I went to a Christian camp, and, and there he said that some of you are called to the ministry. And I raised my hand. I knew I'd been called to the ministry from a small child, and I gave my life to the Lord. And I'll tell you what. I started reading the Bible. I mean, I loved reading the Bible. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. I would, you know, had to get up around 6 o'clock to get ready to go to school. I'd be up at 4.30 in the morning because I was so excited. It was like Christmas morning, every morning. I couldn't wait to get up and open the Bible to see what God had to say to me. I can remember leaving school and just running to my car at the high school and jumping in my car and pulling out, driving home like a maniac and running in the house. What's wrong? What's wrong? nothing. I'm just going to sit in my room to grab my Bible and get on my knees and start reading it. And I'd read it and read it for hours. I started playing the guitar because I just wanted to worship the Lord. I can remember my fingers feeling like they were going to be paralyzed for life. They were hurting so bad, but I had to just sing one more song, worship him one more song. Every morning was precious. Every night was just crying out to God, God, I want to be all you'd have me to be. I want to experience all that you have for my life. Every morning, every night, my whole life was surrendered to him. I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was a radical experience for me. God opened up the supernatural and the word of wisdom and word of knowledge and prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues and, and all the, the things that go along with the giftings of the Holy Spirit as you read about in 1 Corinthians 12. I didn't know anything about it. Never heard about tongues. Didn't even know it was in the Bible. And God... Spirit poured upon me. I started speaking in tongues. I was just like they were in the book of Acts. What meaneth this? I had no idea what it was. It was just a powerful time where God filled me with the Spirit, and I could not stop talking about the Lord. 
I was sharing the Lord with people and they would be fighting me and God would give me a word of knowledge about their life and they'd just be shocked. I just remember so many powerful times talking about the Lord. I always had my pockets bulging. It looked like a, a boy with a pocket full of marbles and there were tracks. That'd last me a half an hour. I'd have to go reload. I couldn't stop because it was, Jesus was so real to me and everybody had to have him and have him now. Every day I, somebody wanted to kill me. <laughs> I was obnoxious. I had a lot of, a lot of zeal but not much knowledge, but I, I just had to tell people about the Lord. But I can also remember losing that first love and it's happened more than once. And I remember trying to get back to that place. He says the first thing you need to do is remember. Maybe for some of you, it's in your marriage as well. You need to remember what it was like. You wanted to hear everything about her or about him. Kindergarten teacher and the color of their bicycle when they were in first grade and where they went on their vacations and how they cut their hair. And you wrote the the songs and the poetry and bought the flowers. Remember, and then what? Repent. Repent. Repent means turn around and start the other direction. Don't let the sliding go anymore. You've been sliding down the slide. Grab onto the sides and start pulling your way back up that slippery slope. Don't let it keep going any longer. Stop it. Right now, repent. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not... Like I'm evil or something. What are you talking about? Let me just ask you this. Are you more on fire today than you've ever been in your life? Or can you remember a time when you were more on fire for the Lord than you are today? If you can remember a time when you were more zealous, more on fire for the Lord than you are today, you are backslidden from that point. You see, people often make the foolish thing saying, well, I may not be a perfect father, but I'm better than my dad. What's that? That's, that's ridiculous. Your dad was a horrible father. You're a notch better than a horrible father. What does that get you? Nothing. We need to get our eyes on Jesus. We need to be walking as Jesus would walk. We need to be pleasing him. We don't want to say, well, at least I'm not like Madonna. I'm a saint. What's that have to do with anything? God brought you as you are a born again believer to an experience, to a relationship with him, and you've allowed it to fall away. You need to repent of that. You can remember where you had this love and this smile on your face as you were walking down the aisle to, and when you were married and your honeymoon and the joy of being together and laying at night looking at each other, having pillow talk with you and your spouse and, and just enjoying each other. Repent. Say it's not going to be this way anymore. Be zealous with the godly sorrow as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 7. And then do what? Do the first works. Repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Do them. Well, I would feel strange. Wouldn't feel natural. Guys, don't wait for fillings. Fillings are so ridiculous. I mean, could you imagine writing to the IRS 
I was going to fill out my IRS form, but it didn't feel right this year. <laughs> How many of you guys felt like doing your taxes this year? Woohoo, tax season. Boy, this is an exciting time. Ooh, I can't wait. No, I don't feel like it. Or, well, I'll take out the trash when I, when I feel, feel the movement of it. Oh, I can feel it. You don't wait to feel things. Our feelings are all messed up. Go back and do. What did you do? Well, I got up early in the morning and, and I read the Bible for an hour. Get up in the morning and do it right now. Remember where you fought. I got to church an hour early and sat on the front row. I fought for the front row, man. I squeezed in even when there wasn't room on the front row and I was on the front row. And I lifted my hands the whole time in worship. Do it again. I always had tracks. Go buy some. Do it now. Guys, right now, I don't want this to be a sermon here that we all take some information and go home. Right now, I'm saying right now. Let's take action right now. Right now, remember from where you've fallen. Remember it right now. Make notes. If you can't write it down right now, be prepared to write it as soon as you get home. Remember those things that you did. And write a schedule out. How, what's it going to be to do it again? And do it. I remember the first time I lost my first love. And, and I'll tell you, I felt like I wasn't saved. I felt my whole life was out of whack. Everything was upside down and things were falling apart. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I came across a scripture. I wasn't in a Bible teaching church like you guys are here. And I discovered it on my own. And I do those things again. And I got up the next morning and I read the Bible. And you know what? I felt nothing. I prayed. I felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. I went back to church and I lifted my hands and it felt awkward. I tried to witness to somebody. It was a big flat zero. I thought, man, there has to be another answer. This isn't working. And God spoke to my heart and he said, by faith, do it. Even if there's no emotional payback, do it. Even if there's no good feelings in the midst of it, do it. Even though you don't feel strengthened by it, do it. Even though it doesn't sense like you're, I'm hearing your prayers, you just keep doing those works. And let me tell you something. It wasn't days. It was months until my first love came back. It was a long, dark, hard, slippery road to get back to my first love. And when I got back there and I... Open up the word and oh, like the good old days. God speaking to my heart again. I said, I'm never going to lose that again. It was too painful. It was too long and dusty and hard of a road to get back. That's why the Lord says action must be now. You must do it now. Today, why it's called today before sin hardens your heart, before bitterness comes, and you depart from the living God. It needs to be now. Today is the day. Let the Spirit fall upon you now, and times of refreshing come now. I talked to a man who was a counselor, and I know that he had counseled many powerful, profound pastors, names that if I mentioned, you would know in an instant. How can they go from these nationwide leaders, profound speakers and writers and powerful men of God to you name it, 
drugs, adultery, embezzlement, on and on the list goes. How could such a thing happen? I expected for a very deep and profound answer, and he simply said to me, they stopped having devotions. Somehow they classified themselves as I don't have to live the regular Christian life because I've read the Bible so much or I have so many commentaries or I've taught so many times or I've been a Christian so long. Guys, as you have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, it says in Colossians, so walk in him. There's nothing new. It's just repeating the same old thing. That would be like me saying to my wife, well, I've been married 21 years. I don't have to talk to you anymore. So here we've been married another four years, and on the 25th anniversary, she's rather unhappy. What's wrong? Well, we're not close like we used to be. We don't talk a lot. Look, I've talked to you 21 out of 25 years. I've done pretty well. It doesn't work that way, does it? And the Bible is the living word of God. It's not like you can read it and know it, and that's all there is to it. It's living. God has something new and fresh to speak to you every single day, whether you've read the Bible once or a thousand times. And it's that same simple Christian life of devotionally seeking him, knowing him, loving him. I had a pastor years ago say, I never do my devotions out of any of the passages I'm teaching on. And boy, I've learned that to be true. Because I'm thinking, oh, that's going to preach like this. And that's a good message for the church rather than just being able to sit and say, Brian, let me talk to you about you. And Lord, let me talk to you about just me and you. There's something precious about that intimate life with God that he won't stand any other way. It has to be with you and him and it needs to happen quickly. He comes back with one more affirmation in verse 6. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You guys have passion about the Nico, which comes from the goddess Nike or conquest. Those who rule over the laitans, the laity, the people of the church. You have people that ruling over the church. This, I hate this. This grieves me. Why? Because Jesus wants servant leaders. Jesus said, I did not come to serve, but to what? I did not come to be served, but I came to what? Serve. He washed the disciples' feet. You call me master and Lord, you're right, I am. And what did I do? I washed your feet. This is what I expect of you. Peter says, let those who rule serve as overseers in 1 Peter. We're to be servants. And those who come in and lord it over people and command them and and using spiritual power as if there's some intercessor that they need. Paul writes to Timothy while he was pastoring there. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus, not some other man, some Nicolaitan, some spiritual hierarchy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24 that we, that we have, in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers of your joy. I love that. Paul said, we're just partners. We're coming alongside you to have joy with you. And there's a hatred for this deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so you have a passion about doctrine. You have a passion about the truth. You have a passion to make sure that the people are in pure teaching. And you make sure that there's not the false apostles and and false leaders. But there's a passion for me now that I want you to have. All those works, don't stop them. Great is your reward. Be steadfast, immovable, the labor, the patient, the work. Keep it going. But it cannot replace the intimacy with you and me. 
It can't be a replacement for it. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet and Martha's trying to fix dinner for the whole crowd that showed up and she says, Jesus, don't you care? He goes, what's wrong? Tell Mary to get up and help me. Martha, Martha, you're troubled about so many things. This is what he said to Martha. There is one thing that is what? Needful. And Mary has chosen that good part and it won't be taken away from her. There's only one thing that's needful. As we sit at Jesus' feet, as we love on him and he speaks to us, now we get up and we're the Martha. God bless the Marthas. We need those who labor fervently, working diligently, patiently, continually. That's a great church to go to. It's a fun place to be where everybody's doing their part. Every joint and ligaments doing its part. Everybody helping out. Everybody serving. Everybody giving themselves to one another. It's got to be that way too. But it can't replace day by day by day by day by day fellowship with him. Oh, I got it down. I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to go on a continuous date with my wife every night. No. Well, I got it. I'm just going to sell the house and we'll move into a little apartment and I'm just going to work 20 hours a week at 7-Eleven so I can spend, you know, 10 hours a day with my wife and get things back right. You know what? There doesn't have to be any crazy extreme thing. The labor, the work, the lifestyle, keep it going. The point is, is you walked away from a very simple thing and that's your time with the Lord where you love Jesus and spend time with Jesus and walk with Jesus. I had a pastor write this. Hey, bro, I feel myself far from God. I feel far from my wife. I've left my first love with both. It has been a long time coming, so it feels like it may take more than a moment to get back. I need his grace, his enabling grace. I need wisdom, the kind James describes that comes from above. The cares of this life are choking me. I have no desire to worship and a great desire for comfort and ease and sin. I am distracted. I am mostly copying other men's sermons, not hearing much from the Lord for myself. All the above troubles me greatly. I don't expect you to fix it, Brian, but hope you will pray. There is a demonic outpouring in the city, a spirit of lesbianism. There it's all over the place. Beautiful girls dressing sexy, holding hands, openly showing affection as if it were natural. I have never seen anything like it before. Hell is pulling out all the stops. P.S. The church here is packed, overflowing, worshiping, and flourishing. By the way, how are you? By the way, how are you? The Lord comes one night and he says, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up and he goes to the priest, Eli, says, what do you need? He goes, I didn't call you, go back to bed. He hears it again, Samuel, Samuel. Finally, the priest discerns and he says, the next time you hear that voice, say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And it says this on that passage in 1 Samuel 3. It says, it came to pass at that time why Eli was lying in his place when his eyes had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. 
And listen to this in 1 Samuel 3, 3. Before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord. Before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle. God came one more time before the lamp went out to find somebody who would listen to his still small voice, who would listen to his voice as he called their name. In Revelation 2, 7, it finishes up here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is there a little tiny ear inside you? A little Samuel that can hear? Eli couldn't hear the voice. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, couldn't hear the voice. But a little tiny boy, Samuel, could hear it. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise. How do we correct? We get our eyes on Jesus. We bring affirmation of what they're doing right. We bring the correction. And then finally, we let them know of the reward. Guys, the reward is awesome. If the Lord six days made the paradise that we know of Adam and Eve were in, imagine how, what the paradise of God's going to be like that he's been building for the last 2,000 years. And there it says he's, we're going to eat of the tree of life. Wow. We're going to get to see that tree of life, guys. Imagine what that's going to be like. It's worth it. It's worth it to fight the fight. It's worth it to fight the fight of your flesh, to fight the fleshliness of the world, to fight the temptation of Satan. It's worth the fight to keep laboring for the church and for the Lord and to labor to keep our first love. It's worth it. You know how it is, guys. In a moment, our life is what? It's about a vapor. It's going to be gone. You know, when kids are small, you can't say to a three-year-old kid, okay, if you go clean your room, I'll give you $5 or put it in the bank, and do you know how much that's going to be worth in 20 years? It doesn't work like that with a three-year-old kid, does it? You put the cookie on the cabinet, and you say, as soon as you're done, you get that cookie. And as soon as he's done, ah, you know. But as they get older, you can farther out, you can make the reward, you know. When your kid's 13, you can say, hey, you got the money for birthday, and you got your allowance, and Go, go take a lawnmower and mow some yards, make some money, and leave that money there. And in five years, it might be enough money for a car if you keep doing that. On a, and boy, so they're going to be working hard and obedient now because five years from now, there's a reward. The more mature you are, the farther out you can see the reward. So you say to a 29-year-old person, hey, put this $1,000 a year in your IRA because when you're 65 years old or 70 years old, it it could be worth this much. Well, 29 years old, it seems like that's going to be a lifetime. Of course, as you start getting up in your 30s and 40s, you realize that's a day. (laughs) But we as believers, God comes and says, hang in there. It's worth it. If you live another 50 years, guys, For me, that would be in my 90s. I don't think I'll live 50 years. But if I did live 50 years, it's only 18,250 days. God's coming and saying, for less than 18,000 days, fight the good fight of faith. Deny yourself. Beat your body in subjection. Put me first. Honor me first. Keep that love alive. Don't stop the labor. Don't stop the work. Don't stop the perseverance. But don't make it a replacement for you and me intimately 
together. Remember the works. Repent that you've fallen from that place where you once were. And now do it. Whether you feel it or not, start repeating it. And let your heart catch back up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. and We hear your cry unto us. Come away, my love. Come away, my fair one. Bring us to your banqueting house today, Lord. Put your banner over us now, which is love. Refresh us, Lord, for we are lovesick for you. Lord, we want to come back and sing those love songs to you. Write the poetry to you. Bring the presence to you. And Lord, if there's any here that have lost their first love in their marriage, the same thing, Lord. Let them repent that they've allowed other things, people, work, money, the cares of this life to creep in and choke out something that was so personal and so precious. Lord, we come before you now. We ask in Jesus' name. You would search our hearts. See if there any wicked way in us, Lord. Did we once used to fight for the front row and lift our hands and kneel and clap and sing? Did we once used to read the Bible more than we do now? Did we once used to go for walks early in the morning just singing to you and crying out to you? Did we once used to share our faith with everyone we saw? Did we used to have a, a passion in our heart for others to know you and, and a smile on our face because your spirit was so reigning in our lives. But now flesh is, now TV is, now sports are, now job or money. Other things have creeped in. But I come before you now. Heal us, Lord. Sustain us, Lord. To some degree, you either have been, you are, or you will be fighting this good fight as the church of Ephesus was. The sad news is the church of Ephesus is no more. Even with the apostle John himself having this letter in his hand, going and telling them personally, the revelation he received from Jesus, it wasn't enough. It's very simple. You've got to do it. You can't think about it. You can't be sincere about it. You've got to do it. And it needs to start today. Give us grace, Lord. Shower us with grace, Lord. Pour the spirit of grace and supplication upon us here today, Lord. That we would weep and cry and desire you more than ever before. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. Before you leave today, meet somebody around you and get a prayer request. You can pray for them throughout this next week. And then next week, find them and ask them how it went. Hope you make it back tonight in the book of Leviticus. God bless you all. Bye-bye.